Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. We're covering part two of the Difficult Airway series with Skylar Lenz, an EM critical care physician and expert in airway management. Part one looked at severe metabolic acidosis and shock and hypotension. Today, we're covering obstructive lung disease, right heart disease, and hypoxemia. Let's get back to the podcast. All right, let's move on to something very challenging for us, especially when we place these patients on ventilators. And that's a patient with obstructive lung disease like asthma or COPD. And our pitfall is failing to aggressively treat these patients with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation prior to intubation. That's right. We see these patients commonly, especially COPD exacerbations and also asthma. And non-invasive positive pressure can help both of these. It gets to the underlying pathophysiology. In COPD, patients have hyperinflation. Their diaphragm gets pushed down and weak and they become weak due to the increased respiratory effort. The extra help from non-invasive positive pressure, in particular non-invasive positive pressure with bi-level settings, it can really help rescue that patient and prevent intubation in the first place. Yeah, and Skylar, you mentioned some really important points. So non-invasive positive pressure ventilation reduces mortality and it reduces the need for intubation. We really need to consider this as a first-line therapy in those with acute hypercapnic respiratory failure. Though it's less studied, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation can also be trialed in those with severe asthma exacerbations and any evidence of respiratory muscle fatigue. In patients with COPD or asthma, bilevel positive airway pressure settings of non-invasive positive pressure ventilation are recommended because they maximize pressure support with an inspiratory positive airway pressure. Now, Skylar, can you tell me a little bit more about bilevel positive airway pressure? Yeah, absolutely. So in patients with COPD or asthma or those with ventilatory failure, so usually the ones with high CO2 or high airway resistance, they need the increased inspiratory pressure to help them with ventilation, to help their weak respiratory muscles and to help overcome the airway constriction uh, from bronchospasm and and other causes. So what I like to do is do bi-level type settings. And you have to monitor the peak inspiratory pressure because you don't want to go much above 20 or 25 A high inspiratory pressure from non-invasive can cause gastric insufflation and put your patient at risk for aspiration. So normally when I'm putting somebody on non-invasive positive pressure in bi-level settings, I might start low at say 10 of inspiratory pressure over 5 of expiratory pressure. And then I'll begin to increase the inspiratory pressure all the way up to 20 if needed to prevent intubation to help my patient ventilate better, decrease the CO2, and help improve. Like we've mentioned, trial and titrate non-invasive positive pressure ventilation along with your other aggressive medical management like inline nebulization and steroids. Try to avoid intubation in those patients with obstructive lung disease. Our next pitfall is not anticipating the hemodynamic risk of high intrathoracic pressure and decreased venous return that is often present in these patients. A lot of these patients have high intrathoracic pressure from the air trapping from their obstructive lung disease. So you have to anticipate that. You want to make sure they have adequate preload. In some patients, this might mean a fluid bolus or just trying to open up their lungs as best as possible with bronchodilators to reduce that intrathoracic pressure. Ketamine might be particularly advantageous as it may cause bronchodilation in those with obstructive lung disease or asthma. And ketamine also allows for maintenance of the respiratory drive if you're using a delayed sequence strategy. In the delayed sequence strategy, you put someone on non-invasive, say they're not particularly compliant or they're fighting it, you could give them a little bit of ketamine 
so that you're able to allow them to ventilate a bit better with non-invasive to put them in a better spot before you do RSI and you push your induction medications. Many of us don't think of ketamine this way, but ketamine may have some bronchodilatory effects, and it's an ideal induction agent in those with obstructive lung disease. But where we often fail in these patients is our inappropriate post-intubation mechanical ventilation settings, which can lead to breath stacking. That's right. We want to avoid breath stacking and worsening that hyperinflation and causing cardiovascular collapse, pneumothorax, barotrauma, and all these other issues. So after I've intubated someone with obstructive lung disease, the really tight asthmatic or the severe COPD case, I recommend a ventilator strategy that has a low respiratory rate. The low respiratory rate allows you to maximize that expiratory time. And what we're shooting for is an I to E ratio of one to four or greater. You really wanna maximize that expiratory time to prevent the generation of auto peep. I'm usually using a volume targeted mode of ventilation, something like volume control assist control with six to eight mLs per kilo of predicted body weight. Peep, generally these patients don't need much in the way of peep. Starting at five is just fine. Some experts do suggest trying to increase the PEEP to match the auto PEEP, but that gets a little bit complicated at the bedside in the ER. So for me, I'm usually starting in five in most patients. And the respiratory rate needs to be adjusted to allow for full exhalation. You can look at the ventilator waveform to see if your patient is fully exhaling before the next breath is given. That's what you're looking for. And these ventilator settings get at something called permissive hypercapnia, which is a respiratory acidosis with a pH greater than 7.2. And this is gonna be tolerated in most patients. Now there are some patients where permissive hypercapnia is a contraindication. And that's things like pulmonary hypertension, brain injuries at risk for increased ICP, pregnancy, and some toxic ingestions. So we talked about how important a low respiratory rate is to allow plenty of time for exhalation so that you do not cause air trapping, auto peep, and all the negative effects with that. Now, sometimes what will happen is after the paralytic wears off, your patient will wake up and begin breathing on their own. Their own intrinsic respiratory drive could be high, so they could have a respiratory rate that is much more than the rate that you set on the ventilator. This in itself, this spontaneous high respiratory rate can worsen the air trapping and all the negative effects that we're talking about. So some patients will need deep sedation. On occasion, they even need neuromuscular blockade or paralysis to allow you to set the respiratory rate and to keep them safe on the ventilator. The other thing I'm monitoring for here, in addition to making sure that they're allowed to exhale between each breath, is the plateau pressure. I'm looking to keep the plateau pressure less than 30. And the plateau pressure we measure by an inspiratory hold on the ventilator. And this gives us an idea of the alveolar pressure. If the plateau pressure is greater than 30 in a patient with obstructive lung disease, that suggests they are generating auto peep and that you should be worried. If you encounter someone with obstructive lung disease and a plateau pressure above 30, think about decreasing the respiratory rate even lower, giving them a pause or disconnecting them from the ventilator if they become unstable or giving more bronchodilators and more aggressive medical therapy. I'm so glad you mentioned the plateau pressure of 30. Air trapping from a high respiratory rate can lead to hemodynamic collapse, and a patient with a high spontaneous respiratory rate may need deep sedation with or without neuromuscular blockade. Now, out of the frying pan into the fire, let's talk about pulmonary hypertension, right heart failure, and PE. And our first pitfall is failing to identify a patient with pulmonary hypertension or right heart failure. 
One of the riskiest intubations that we can do as emergency physicians is in the patient with pulmonary hypertension or right ventricular failure. We have to anticipate this. We have to be ready for this. So what I'd like to do is try to identify it in the first place. It can be tricky, but if you do a good history and exam, you can identify it. So some of the things that I'm looking for, I'm looking for a suggestive physical exam. Is there JVD? Is there peripheral edema? If I look in the patient's chart, are they on medications typical of someone with pulmonary hypertension? Or I might look at their previous echo report if I have time. If not, I think this is a great indication for bedside ultrasound to try to pick up on this ahead of time. And what you're looking for is RV dilation greater than two-thirds the size of the left ventricle, or looking for flattening of the intraventricular septum or that D-shape that we all talk about to identify the RV dysfunction ahead of time so that you can manage these patients appropriately and safely get them through intubation or maybe prevent it in the first place. What you're telling me is that we need to identify those with RV failure and pulmonary hypertension using our history, exam, and either a prior echo or a bedside point of care ultrasound. These patients have a very complex physiology. And where we fail these patients is we don't anticipate or prepare for the hemodynamic challenges of these patients. The pulmonary vascular system is essentially a very low resistance circuit with a thin walled RV. This pump acts against low afterload. Unfortunately, the RV has limited capacity to adapt to an acute rise in afterload or pulmonary vascular resistance. Once the pulmonary vascular resistance worsens, this can cause RV dysfunction and RV dilation and pressure overload. This leads to bulging of the intraventricular septum and then finally a compromise in the left ventricular function and finally cardiac output. Acute hypoxemia, hypercapnia, and acidosis lead to pulmonary vasoconstriction, and we need to aggressively avoid these in patients with failing RVs. That's right, Brett. The big pearl here is to avoid and manage the precipitants that'll increase the pulmonary vascular resistance, that increase the RV afterload and stress out the RV, making it at risk of failure. So you really wanna aggressively treat hypoxemia, hypercapnia, and an acidosis. So another pitfall is not treating hypotension. And because hypotension can lead to an underperfused and ischemic right ventricle. And this is when we talk about that deadly cycle, that vicious cycle of RV ischemia, RV pressure overload, reduced cardiac output, and cardiovascular collapse. Because you have to remember that RV is perfused normally, both during systole and diastole. Since the pressure in the right ventricle is low, it can be perfused in both, rather than the high pressure on the left ventricular side. But what can happen is that the PA pressure rises, particularly if it exceeds the systemic blood pressure, the RV perfusion decreases, and this may cause ischemia. And if you're giving your patient too much fluids or they're already volume overloaded, the volume overloaded right ventricle also places it at further risk for ischemia. So if there is systemic hypotension, even before you think about giving any induction medications, you need to correct the hypotension beforehand. And you need to really aggressively correct those things that increase the RV afterload. You want to avoid over-resuscitation with fluids, correct hypoxemia, hypercapnia as best you can to help prevent this deadly cycle. Unfortunately, the normal exam and ultrasound findings of volume responsiveness are not really reliable in this patient population. And those with RV failure and pulmonary hypertension are very sensitive to changes in preload. Volume overload can worsen RV dilation and ischemia, but hypovolemia will decrease cardiac output. If your history suggests hypovolemia, 
give a 250 to 500 milliliter fluid challenge and reassess the patient. If the patient doesn't improve, don't provide further fluid boluses. Instead, reach for vasopressor like norepinephrine. Norepinephrine can maintain the systemic blood pressure in patients with RV failure. Try to avoid phenylephrine because the pure alpha agonism will cause pulmonary vasoconstriction. When it comes to your induction agent, think about it carefully and use an appropriate dose similar to the doses we talked about for that patient with hypotension. So another pitfall to mention is if you're pushed to intubate these patients, you really have to have appropriate mechanical ventilation strategies to avoid increased or too high intrathoracic pressure, causing an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance, to cause a decrease in preload, and to cause other complications. Now I will mention too, you can try high flow nasal cannula or non-invasive positive pressure first to try to avoid intubation in the first place. The nice thing about non-invasive positive pressure here is if you cause hemodynamic compromise, you can just take the mask off and the intrathoracic pressure goes away. Now, when you have to place them on the ventilator, there's a few things to remember here. You want to normalize the PaCO2 as best you can, normalize the pH, and normalize oxygenation. Try to keep your oxygen saturation above 90% to decrease hypoxic vasoconstriction and an increase in pulmonary vascular resistance. So in order to keep the intrathoracic pressure low, what I'm looking for here is a low tidal volume, say six mLs per kilo of ideal body weight, and a low PEEP, start at five. The higher the PEEP, the higher the intrathoracic pressure that'll worsen preload. So this mechanical ventilation strategy in those with RV failure and pulmonary hypertension targets normalizing the PaCO2, the PaO2, and pH with a low pressure strategy, low PEEP, and a low tidal volume. Our next pitfall is failing to treat a PE prior to induction and mechanical ventilation. PE is a really common acute cause of RV pressure load that we're going to see in the ED. The issue is, is that a normal RV often can't acutely generate the pressure that's needed to overcome the acute rise in pulmonary vascular resistance due to a massive PE. In those patients who are hemodynamically unstable, provide systemic thrombolysis prior to induction. This systemic thrombolysis may prevent the need for intubation or at the very least decrease the risk of peri-intubation cardiac arrest. That's right. And when it's all said and done, we have to think about advanced treatment considerations. Patients with pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular failure are complicated. So this is a time to ask for help. Some other things that I keep in mind are there may be a role for inhaled pulmonary vasodilators, things like inhaled nitric oxide and epoprostenol to decrease the pulmonary vascular resistance. These might be an option. The other thing you can think about in severe cases is ECMO. But at the end of the day, you should be calling for help. You should call if this patient has established care at a specialty center. You should get them on the phone and ask them their opinion and get ready to transfer them, especially if someone with pulmonary hypertension gets intubated. They should probably go to a specialty center who knows them best and can offer advanced therapies if they need it. Our final condition is severe hypoxemia, and I feel that we have really improved in leaps and bounds managing these patients. But where we have issues with these patients is we fail to adequately preoxygenate prior to induction and intubation. Now, we handle hypoxemic respiratory failure from pneumonia and other conditions on almost a daily basis. But if we intubate these patients while they're critically hypoxemic, this can be a disaster, which can lead to cardiovascular collapse. Severe hypoxemia during intubation is associated with adverse outcomes and is definitely a risk factor for cardiac arrest. 
Your pearl is that these factors like pre-intubation hypoxemia and lack of pre-oxygenation are predictors of adverse events. Yeah, that's right, Britt. The big pitfall here is not using all the tools that you have to pre-oxygenate. So one of the big tools that you can use here is non-invasive positive pressure. So the major things that we have at our disposal to get your patient safely through the induction and prevent desaturation are pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation. And also positioning can help. So sitting patients upright in a semi-upright position, particularly those that are obese, can help uh, increase their functional residual capacity and increase that reservoir of oxygen. Now, by our review of the literature here, there's been a lot of studies looking at non-invasive positive pressure versus high-flow nasal cannula or non-rebreather mask. And by my read of everything that, that I've seen is non-invasive positive pressure is the most potent pre-oxygenator that we have. And this makes sense. It increases mean airway pressure, keeps the alveoli open, and recruits the alveoli that might be closed or diseased. So for me, I'm using non-invasive positive pressure and apneic oxygenation to try to prevent desaturations as best I can. I'm glad you talk about high-flow nasal cannula. The benefit of high-flow nasal cannula for pre-oxygenation and even apneic oxygenation compared to our conventional oxygen therapies is pretty unclear right now. There are several small RCTs comparing high-flow nasal cannula to bag valve mask ventilation or a face mask in hypoxemic patients, but these studies really found no statistically significant difference in the mean lowest oxygen saturation. There was a more recent study called the OPTINIV trial, which compared the combination of high-flow nasal cannula and non-invasive positive pressure ventilation to non-invasive positive pressure ventilation alone for pre-oxygenation. But the issue is that the intervention group received high-flow nasal cannula during the apneic period, but the non-invasive positive pressure ventilation group received no further oxygenation after that pre-oxygenation period. And the results make sense. Authors found that the intervention group had higher minimum oxygen saturations during the intubation, and they had fewer episodes of desaturation than the control group. So our big pearl for this section is pre-oxygenate using non-invasive positive pressure ventilation in a head-elevated position if the patient's clinical condition allows you, and utilize apneic oxygenation with high-flow nasal cannula. Our next pitfall is something that's really pertinent to today with COVID, and that's failing to use appropriate personal protective equipment in those with suspected respiratory infections. Yeah, that's right. And the other thing I'll point out is it's important to remember a lot of these pre-oxygenation studies looked at patients with respiratory infections like pneumonia. So these pre-oxygenation and apneic oxygenation strategies that we talk about also include pneumonia. And as you said, it's so important with COVID-19 to protect yourself, to protect the staff around you, and to use airborne precautions to reduce the risk of viral transmission during high-risk procedures like intubation, bag valve mask ventilation, or non-invasive positive pressure. That rounds out part two on the difficult airway. Remember, treat patients with obstructive lung disease aggressively with non-invasive positive pressure ventilation prior to intubation. These patients are at high risk of hemodynamic collapse from high intrathoracic pressures caused by air trapping, and patients require prolonged expiratory times with slow respiratory rates while mechanically ventilated. Pulmonary hypertension and right ventricular failure present complex physiologic challenges. The big goal is to avoid systemic hypotension or a sudden increase in pulmonary vascular resistance from hypercapnia, acidosis, or hypoxemia. Any patient with preceding hypoxemia should be aggressively pre-oxygenated using non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. 
Thanks for joining us. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.